Texas talking. Oh, what was that that you said? Texas talking. Ah, gonna hoop upside your head. Texas talking. Tell me who can you trust when Texas guys are Texas guys Happy holidays. This is Emily Ramshaw reporting for duty on the 27th of December, a day Evan, Ross, and Patrick decided to take off with your Texas Tribune Tribcast. On this special year-end edition of the Tribcast, I'm going to talk to four of our most impressive reporters on four of our most important stories of the year, journalism that was particularly powerful and impactful. And I'm going to start by taking a trip down memory lane with Alexa Ura to the doubleheader legislative session we had this year, one in which a bathroom bill was front and center. Alexa, tell me how you got onto the so-called bathroom beat. (laughs) So I have been covering uh, LGBT issues sort of on a part-time sub-beat basis and had covered some of the same-sex marriage, um, ruling fallout and sort of the following from that. And then very quickly in 2016, that ended up being bathrooms. Um, Did I think we'd spend eight to nine months with this sort of sucking the air out of the collective (laughs) legislative room? Probably not, but um, it's sort of transformed from that. Well, what did GOP lawmakers see in this legislation? I mean, I know not all of them did, but what really was sort of the motivating factor when this had been like a total cluster in places like North Carolina? You know, it's interesting because during the 2015 session, there were actually uh, bills filed that you could sort of call precursors to this bathroom bill, but they just had you know very little traction. I'm not even sure they got a committee hearing. Um, but some of this dated back to when the Fort Worth ISD superintendent tried to um, make changes to their non-discrimination policy and Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick very quickly jumped in on that fight and was boosted in that fight a couple of days later when the Obama administration issued their own guidelines telling public schools that they needed to accommodate transgender students from their, you know, the AG's office to the Obama administration. The year before, obviously, Hero, there was a big fight in Houston over its own um, equal rights discrimination, non-discrimination ordinance, and Dan Patrick was also involved in that. And so it just kind of got rolling um, off of those two things sort of amid the North Carolina fight. And by the time the legislative session started, this was sort of the key issue going into it. And so what would this legislation, if it had passed, done? A couple of things. Um, most notably, it would have nixed um, non-discrimination protections um, for transgender individuals that had been in place for decades in some of the state's biggest cities, um, particularly when it comes to public accommodations, which are the ones that covered sort of bathrooms in public restaurants and businesses. And and the other thing is it would have regulated bathroom use in public schools based on biological sex, which would have kept uh, most trans kids from being um, able to use the bathroom that lined up with their gender identity. So what was it like to cover this personally? I mean, I remember nights when you would be stuck in the Texas Capitol in these committee hearing rooms till three and four in the morning, you know, with parents and their transgender kids. What was it like sort of emotionally, personally to to be experiencing those things up close? You know, it was hard for me to complain about it then and even now, just because knowing what 
those months were probably like for people who would have been directly affected by the bill. But I think, quite frankly, it was pretty tough. I mean, you were, some of these hearings went on for hours and hours. I mean, the first Senate hearing ended 22 hours after it started the day before. And, you know, hundreds of people had signed up to testify, most of them, a vast majority of them, in opposition. And so for hours, it was people sitting down in front of lawmakers and, and very much sort of pleading with them to not put them in danger, um, which is what they said this legislation would do. And so, you know, they were asking for themselves and for their parents and their siblings and, and you know, most notably their little children. And for hours and hours, you would hear this testimony and, and the scene just sort of repeated itself several times during the legislative session, oftentimes with parents sort of carrying those sleeping children in their arms while testifying. And, it, you know, it's, it's a tough thing to watch and more so when you contextualize it against sort of broader uh, fights over discrimination protections and knowing that, you know, a couple of decades ago we were talking about people of color and other sort of different um, classifications of people. And, and it was hard to ignore that when you're sitting there for hours. So after the bill failed the first time around and you learned you'd be back for a second session, a special legislative session where the bathroom bill was basically like the motivating factor to be back there. Um, what was that like? And tell me without using any expletives. <laughs> <laughs> well, I managed to sneak a vacation in between sessions and almost didn't come back. <laughs> but I think, you know, I think at the end of the regular, it was pretty clear that we were coming back and it was pretty clear that this is going to be an issue by then. Uh, Governor Abbott, after months of silence on it had said that he was pretty in favor of some sort of policy. Um, but, you know, I think in the days leading up to his official announcement, I had talked to parents of, of transgender kids who, you know, for months had sort of been collectively holding their breath and sort of felt like a little bit of relief after the end of session and sort of worked coming back to this once again and, and to see it through their lens, particularly in the summer, knowing that, um, you know, that now any decision that was made by the legislature would be made right before kids would go back to school and that any sort of accommodations that they had achieved for them could be wiped out pretty quickly. And so, you know, I kind of came at it um, from that perspective, knowing what it must have been like to go through this all over again for those who would have been affected by it. Right. And so in the end, why do you think this legislation didn't make it across the finish line? Um, I think there were a lot of factors, but I think the main ones that we can point to are the Texas business community and Joe Strauss, the Speaker of the House. I mean, I, I, it's pretty clear that this didn't move anywhere in the House because of him. And, and you know, I think there were obviously a lot of folks who were working behind the scenes to keep this from passing, but uh, Strauss was very key to that. And it was interesting as someone who was sort of watching every twist and turn of this to watch his position on this and really his public opposition to this sort of develop and become more clear as sort of the business community opposition became louder and louder. And, you know, whether that gave him cover, whether he needed it or not, whether that was really why he opposed this, I don't know. I'm not privy to his own, you know, to his thoughts on this, but I think it was pretty clear that that he was the one that stopped this. And, you know, we've since then we've heard chatter about you know the governor getting calls from big donors and and big business folks saying wanting to talk about this issue and he'd say you know don't worry about this joe's not going to let this out and so i think even even in the aftermath of the special session um we've seen sort of the blame fall on on strauss and, and he's taken a couple of victory laps really on this issue wonderful thanks so much for your coverage of this alexa and thanks for joining me today of course 
Next, I'm going to turn to Jay Root with probably my favorite series of stories of the year on misbehavior inside the Texas Alcoholic Beverage Commission. Hi, Jay. Hello. So, Jay, tell us how this investigation began. Did you get, like, some sneaky brown envelope stuck under your door? You know, how did you learn that the TABC was even an agency you ought to be investigating? Well, it it was, uh, you know, January of 2017, and um, I had to figure out what I was going to do during the session because, you know, I cover ethics and all of that, but I knew that I needed to think about what I wanted to do. And I've, I've always been interested in cars and liquor, not, not necessarily, <laughs> no surprise. not necessarily in that order. Um, and it was actually over liquor. It was over drinks at the Sheridan. And I was meeting with some operatives and lobbyist types. Um, and I disclosed that I was interested in cars and liquor. And I happened to be with some people who were interested in liquor as well. Um, liquor regulation. And, and the reason I'm interested is because this is an area of the law. It's, it's a very, there are a lot of arcane laws, but they, they're they worth a lot of money to, to, you know, beer distributors, for example, or car distributors, car dealerships. And um, I found out that there had been, you know, there've been a bunch of lawsuits and open records requests. And I stumbled onto a cache of literally thousands. I was told there were 100,000 records, emails, travel vouchers. That was a lot of this back and forth between companies that are trying to break into the liquor market. And they feel like they're sort of these monopolistic tendencies. And that's what I was interested in. And then you know, it's, it's it can be kind of boring. And then I stumbled upon this flyer. And the flyer depicted, uh, I didn't even really know what it was, but it was like, wait a minute, that's the head of the agency and the licensing director in some plane, airplane, and they're like guzzling beer. And I'm like, what is this? And I'm like, <laughs> that that's when I woke up. And it's like, this isn't boring anymore. <laughs> So that's what happened. All right. And so once you, that was sort of like the first layer of the onion, you saw this flyer. And as you started digging, what did you learn? Give us the sort of Cliff Notes versions of the sort of malfeasance you discovered in this agency. Well, let, let me let me start by um, in a, a little bit different order and just read the headline of the very first story. And then I'll and then I'll peel back the onion for you. And that headline is liquor regulators partying on taxpayers tab. So let me go back to that infamous flyer that we just talked about. And even today, I struggle to describe it without showing an actual picture of it. Um, It's kind of hard to fathom. I mean, seeing it is believing. But it's a photoshopped image of the top brass of the TABC guzzling beer in an airplane. And it says, there's this caption that says, California, here we come, woohoo, NCSLA 2015. So I'm like... Okay, well, what is NCSLA? I, I wanted to know everything about this flyer. Who made it? What What is the NCSLA? You know, why is the director doing this? And, and what I found out was that the executive director and the licensing director actually oversaw the creation of this. And so I wanted to know, like, what's the culture of an agency that's going to lead to this? And that's where I started finding out about, well, there were other trips that were taken. And they were spending a lot of taxpayer money going to these conferences conferences out of state at, like, really nice resorts, including Hawaii. Um, at a time when, you know, the states, you know, you get these uh, emails from the governor and lieutenant governor out to the agency saying, you know, crack down on your spending, reduce your spending by a certain percent across the board. And this seemed like a real outlier situation. Um, and I, I discovered that NCSLA is basically paid for with industry 
dollars. And so you have the regulators going out and drinking and partying with um, the people that they're supposed to be regulating. And so that whole area ended up producing a whole bunch of stories. Tell me specifically about the hazardous duty pay on some trip to Hawaii. Well, one of the things that we discovered was that um, a lot of the top honchos were getting, were becoming certified as peace officers because, you know, the TABC is really, they have a, a major law enforcement function because if, you know, minors are drinking or there's all kinds of laws that you have to adhere to if you're serving alcohol because it is a, an intoxicating substance. And so um, people have to, you know, you have to have these, somebody has to be enforcing this. Um, and um, so some of the top brass were getting certified as peace officers. And as part of that, you get a car, you get weapons, you get extra pay, hazardous duty pay. And so Sherry Cook, uh, the director of the agency, was one of the people who got certified as a police officer, even though her day-to-day duties don't really require her to be in law enforcement. Um, and... Um, was, you know, we, we discovered that while she was out in Hawaii at one of these conferences, at one of these nice conferences, right, she was actually collecting hazardous duty pay. All right. So tell us how many people ended up losing their jobs over this. Um, and, and I'm, you know, curious, once people lose their jobs for, for stuff like this, what it's like sort of being responsible for the unraveling of an agency? Seven people ended up departing um, and uh, all under sort of different circumstances. There was a commissioner uh, who left because he didn't want to be part of the new um, world order that wasn't being installed over there. Um, the executive director, the deputy executive director, the general counsel, the chief of, of enforcement. I mean, I mean the, that's like the top brass. Yeah, the top brass. And there were only like a couple left that were that were part of the executive cadre that just mm-hmm. were gone, that, that didn't leave. And so what was that like for you? I mean, being responsible for that? You know, I mean, really what it was, I, I think it was more like pouring gas on a fire that w- had been burning a little bit. Um, because there was a lot of dissatisfaction with the TABC. And so I think that um, I ended, I stumbled into something that was boiling and, you know, tipped it over is kind of the way I look at it. So what's next for you personally? Whose scalps are you going to pin to the wall next year? Well, I'm not really like looking for scalps, <laughs> uh, although sometimes that can be the effect of, of uh, scrutinizing an agency. But I'm still very interested at, uh, in, in the intersection of business uh, business regulation and, and state government, because that's really, you know, we, we, we focus a lot on shiny objects, whether it's the bathroom bill or whatever, and rightly so, we should cover these. But a lot of times while we're doing that, there's a lot of money being made, and I think we need to expose that more. Great. Well, thanks, Jay, for uh, your great work this year and for joining me today. Absolutely. All right. Just a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, please leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, Here's one great example. Texas reviewer writes, I haven't missed one episode since I heard the first one six years ago. My only regret is not listening to it sooner every week. All right. Next up, I've got Nina Satija, an investigative reporter for both the Texas Tribune and Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting. Hi, Nina. Hi, Emily. So Nina had a really surreal year because she's been one of the primary reporters covering the Hurricane Harvey beat for us. And her story starts actually not in 2017, but with a huge investigation she pursued in 2016. Nina, tell us about Boomtown Floodtown. So Boomtown Floodtown came out of our previous investigation, Hell and High Water. We were looking at the fact that Houston is an incredibly vulnerable city to hurricanes, but not just hurricanes with all the wind and the storm surge that you hear about with a storm like Katrina, but also just torrential rainfall. 
And we kept hearing while we were working on stories about flooding in Houston that just rain, when it, when it rains a lot, we have problems. Uh, we're not prepared for torrential rainfall. We're not prepared for a big rainstorm. And um, we learned that a lot of the rainstorms that have hit Houston in the past few years have flooded areas that n no one ever thought would flood, that are not in a floodplain, that don't, ha you know, you don't have to buy flood, you don't have to buy flood insurance if you live there. And so we really, that's what Boomtown Flood Town was about. Right. Well, the reporting was really extraordinary. And the big takeaway, as you said, was like, hey, Houston, you are totally and completely at risk, like not just for a direct hit hurricane, but also for a devastating rain event. You all even won a national Peabody Award for this coverage. Yeah, for the Helen High Water investigation, which focused more on hurricanes and storm surge, I think that got a lot of attention. But the interesting thing was when we were reporting that, a lot of people in Houston seemed to know more about the risk from rainfall and be even worried about that. And it's disturbing because, I mean, a hurricane is going to come with a torrential rainfall. So if Houston isn't ready for a torrential rainstorm, it's definitely not ready for a hurricane. Right. And so, so then in August, I mean, amazingly, what you predicted basically came true. In the in the sense of the rain, yes, like we, that huge rainstorm that you know scientists and advocates and some government officials had been saying would come one day, did in fact happen, and it was definitely surreal to watch that unfold. So, what was it like having predicted this and then having it basically come true? I mean, and you wonder, like, with reporters, was there any like I told you so or like holy shit we were right, or was there no time for any of those thoughts to circulate because you were like already in the belly of the beast? I think there there definitely wasn't time to think about that. And I think we also, it was just alarming. I mean, Kia and I, Kia Collier and I, who worked on Boomtown Floodtown together, were just in Houston watching the rain come down, uh, wondering if we were going to be able to get around, wondering, you know, if, if people were going to be killed because of this. And so I think it was just a... Um, you never do these investigations and then and then hope for something to come true. I mean, it's that's just not how it works. Right. What was covering this storm like? So you and Kia and some of our other reporters like really went down there immediately. Did you have a leg up like scientifically because you've done so much research on this ahead of time? Did you know like which communities were most likely to flood or which res reservoirs might be susceptible? We did know a lot about the Attics and Barker reservoirs. Those are two giant reservoirs west of Houston that had just enormous problems during Harvey, which we've written a lot about. Uh, we also were really interested in the neighborhoods that were not in the hundred year floodplain, you know, that don't, that didn't historically flood until just in the past few years. Uh, and so those are a lot of the neighborhoods we hit first as soon as we were able to get around. And so even given that expertise, sort of what was it like emotionally, physically, logistically to cover, you know, one of the most devastating hurricanes in, in all time? It was uh, not something that I think any of us could have been prepared for. Um, I think, uh, you know, we just getting around was difficult. I think we knew that it was going to be hard to move around. But I think once you're there, you're in the middle of it. You're looking at Twitter. You're watching people get on boats. Um, it wasn't something that we had the infrastructure to be able to do. And that was frustrating. Uh, you know, we our hotel lost power. We had to kind of you know, run down a bunch of stairs in the dark with all of our stuff, finding another hotel. There were a lot of like a lot of frustrations. We saw a lot of we saw a lot of despair, and that was a hard thing to see. Mm -hmm. What what was it like? You know, <laughs> being on the ground. I mean, tell me a little bit about the things you experienced, the people you met. Yeah, the the thing I'm the the scene I'm thinking the most about is we actually ended up in a neighborhood that's uh, now you'd say that it's inside Attic's Reservoir, and you know you can read about that on our site how. 
homes were built in areas that were actually designed to flood in a storm like Harvey. So we ended up in one of these neighborhoods and uh, this guy took us around in his canoe. I mean, it was actually kind of a nice moment. We had just been driving around all day and were exhausted and we weren't really trying to do any reporting. He was just like, hey, do you guys want to take a ride? And we took this very sort of eerie quiet, peaceful canoe ride. Through like a river that was a neighborhood, basically, right? (laughs) Basically in a neighborhood, yeah. Um, Around the, in the same area, uh, just I think a couple hours later, we saw something in a nearby neighborhood that was, you know, very disturbing. Um, This young man in his early 20s was trying to get his dad to leave um, his house, which was in a completely flooded area. There was no way to drive over there. And so this young man was just basically wading back and forth um, you know, for miles, um, trying to get his dad to leave. His dad had, I think, diabetes and was very sick, and they were really worried that he wouldn't make it if he was just stuck in the house for many days. And eventually, I think someone convinced his dad to come in a boat, but this young man was just going back and forth, and we actually saw him. He kind of finally came back onto the sidewalk and collapsed, and we had to call 911, and he had to go to the paramedics. So wow. there were a lot of really crazy Heroin. Things that we saw. Yeah. yeah. So what's the Texas Tribune's responsibility um, as far as this story is concerned going forward? I mean, what's what's our approach? How do we set our coverage apart? <laughs> Sorry. Um, I think that, uh, you know, we obviously I think we're doing a great job covering um, where the money is going. I think what's the state's role in recovery? What's the federal government's role? Um and what's the role in like deciding what to do? It still doesn't seem like we're even at a place where people know what to ask for, how much money to ask for. There's no agreement on that. And those are all things that, you know, when you're in the city that flooded or you're in the specific area that's flooded, you've got so much else to cover. I think we can really zoom out. Um, and I think we can also look at, you know, what's Houston going to learn uh, in the future? What's the lessons? What are the lessons learned and how is Houston going to respond? Well, thank you so much for your reporting, Nina, and for joining me today. Thank you. Okay, last but certainly not least, I'm joined by Edgar Walters, one of our investigative reporters who produced a stunning series on child sex trafficking in Texas this year called Sold Out. Hi, Edgar. Hello. So, Edgar, I think when most people think about sex trafficking, they have this really specific visual in mind of, like, massage parlors or, you know, women who've been brought into the country illegally and are sold for sex. Um, And I think the media historically has sort of painted this really narrow picture. But what you learned really is that there's a whole other side to this story that involves kids in Texas. That's right. Um, And that honestly came as kind of a shock to me. When we first, um, the sort of genesis of this project really was that um, state leaders in Texas love to talk about sex trafficking and just how hard of a stance they've taken against this evil crime. And we thought like, wow, like maybe this is a world we should explore a little more deeply. Um, And yeah, I think the popular conception is um, immigrants being brought into this country and being sold for sex. And all of that absolutely is true and is a phenomenon. Um, but what we found in the court cases we examined was that a lot of these kids are kids who just, they're regular Texas kids. They grew up in families in Houston, Dallas, all over the state. Um, and a lot of them are uh, part of the child welfare system. Either they were in foster care, as a number of the um, girls that we interviewed were, um, or they had had some kind of contact with Child Protective Services. Mm-hmm. And so how did these young women, well, some young men too, but how did these young kids really get lured into this lifestyle? And then sort of like, what changes do they undergo once they're there? Every story was unique, but there were definitely some commonalities. So in general, kids came from 
a sort of a broken home. Often they lived in poverty. Their parents were struggling. Um, maybe the parents weren't around and they were living with family members. Um, or there was drug addiction and history of sort of criminal justice uh, issues. Um, it, but for one reason or another, they ended up um, either in the custody of the state or with sort of child protective services somehow involved in their lives. Mm-hmm. And um, that can be a really traumatizing experience. Um, kids, you know, we interviewed girls who were sort of ripped from their families after really traumatic sexual or physical abuses. Um, their lives are really in a fragile state, and it's kind of up to the state um, to assume the responsibility to protect them. Unfortunately, it means they're also craving family, craving affection, and um, in a lot of cases, it ends up being a pimp who's able to provide that for them. Right. Well, as you said, you know, we've watched the state's top elected officials sort of talk this big game for years about being super tough on pimps and like going after the men who, you know, purchase these young women. Um, But I wonder really if they've been committed to fixing what you described as this major pipeline for sex trafficking, and that's the state's foster care system. Yeah, that was really the biggest issue that we, you know, that was the accountability angle of this story was that, yeah, state leaders who love to talk about being tough on this crime um, and who, to be fair, um, you know, the attorney general's office uh, under Ken Paxton and previously Greg Abbott when he was the attorney general, um, you know, had this special unit to go after um, sex trafficking victims and help sort of local um, district attorneys do the same thing. But when it came to actually walking the walk on child welfare, you know, the state system was severely underfunded. When we wrote this series, um, the the child welfare agency was facing a huge budget shortfall. They said they needed a billion extra dollars just to get their operations in line. Um, lawmakers were not willing to set aside that amount. They ultimately gave them about half of uh, what they wanted. Um, and at the same time, uh, the attorney general's office was actually, f- with the governor's office at their side, was fighting a lawsuit that was actually meant to reform the foster care system right. and whose lead plaintiff was a child victim of sex trafficking. So there was certainly an amount of, or an element of doublespeak, I think. Absolutely. Well, what role does the criminal justice system play in all of this? I mean, you've seen some really dedicated detectives who are like trying to get these girls out of the hands of pimps, um, you know, even when they have to do it over and over and over again. But then a lot of these girls end up being criminalized, you know, for being victimized. Yeah, you know, um, I think there are certainly parallels to what we're seeing in the sort of current historical moment around uh, rape and sexual abuse allegations where victims often feel afraid to come forward because victims may face criminal um, charges themselves. And so that's what we found. Um, There was one story that we we focused on uh, with a young woman out of San Antonio who was the victim of a pimp herself but was part of this ring where there was an underage girl as well. So the victim who was in her early 20s when we interviewed her, actually we were interviewing her from prison because just by being, you know, under this pimp, she was sort of like guilty by association, if that makes sense. Um, So yeah, we actually did find a lot of hesitation among victims themselves to even want to speak about this for fear of uh, prosecution. Well, if foster care is one of the big pipelines in, the pipeline out isn't just sort of cracking down on the pimps. I mean, a lot of, like you said, a lot of these women themselves end up getting charged. Um, As experts have learned over and over, it's really about getting these young women services. And in Texas, it appears like there's hardly any of it available, right? 
Yeah. So I will say after our series ran, um, lawmakers set aside um, more funding than they kind of originally it originally seemed that they would for the child welfare program uh, agencies specifically. Um, they gave them about half of uh, what they asked for. That one billion dollars, they gave them about half of that. Um, <clears throat> some of that money went specifically, or or some some money in general went to. Um, specific anti-trafficking efforts, um, you know, some services for victims. Um, recently, the governor's office sort of uh, got the child welfare agency to hire a director of uh, trafficking prevention. Uh, she's just started her job recently. Um, we had an interview with her a couple weeks ago. So, yes, I mean, there was some action on this. Um, I think lawmakers, when we interviewed them, kind of had to concede, like, you can't tackle trafficking without actually um, paying some money to help victims. Uh, but the general consensus is that this is still a huge need. And um, yeah, the, the state basically has almost nowhere to uh, house victims who are recovered for specialized services. Not every victim who's who's recovered by the state needs like a specialized home. But for the ones who do, like at press time, the state only had 20 beds for them. Wow. Well, this was a really important project. Uh, thanks for talking to us about it today. Thank you. All right, folks. Well, that's all the time we have. If you like listening to the TribCast this year, please do us a favor and leave us a review on iTunes. Those ratings help us reach more listeners like you. And if you value the Tribune's nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom, please consider making a donation at support.texastribune.org. Thanks to Shiner Ribs, as always, for our music. And on behalf of Nina, Edgar, Jay, Alexa, and our producers, Todd and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next year. Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking. What's Wild Wednesday? I saw it in the brochure. Is that what it's called? <laughs> Wild Wednesdays? Wild Wednesdays. Wow. It's like a this might not be a good political climate for that.